one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot when it comes to running tighter sales cycles, because that's sort of the theme right now, right? Win rates are sort of lower across the board, at least in the work that I'm doing with companies and deals are taking a little longer to close. And one thing that I think about a lot is what's, what kind of friction are we creating for buyers? The bad kind of friction, the stuff that slows deals down. And a lot of that has to do with the language that we use. And our guest today, he shared something really great in this episode, and it was that prospects want to be told and react. They don't want to have to do all the work. And I'll tell you a little bit more about what that means. But before we get to that, my name is Jason Bay. You're listening to Outbound Squad, where we help you turn complete strangers into paying customers. So if you're an SDR, BDR, doing a bunch of prospecting, if you're an account executive doing prospecting and selling, you're definitely in the right place. Today, we have an awesome guest, Mark Casaglo. He's the Chief Revenue Officer at Catalyst Software, former VP of Sales at Outreach. And uh, this is one of those dudes that I I could pick this guy's brain for three or four hours. <laughs> but we talked about a lot of really great stuff in this episode that I think you're going to dig. I've been talking a lot about multi-threading. So super, super important right now, right? Involving more stakeholders in our deal cycles so that we can increase win rates. And he's talked about a lot of great stuff, just how to deal with below the line prospects. So what to do when you have a manager or a director in a first call and how multi-threading with below the line only goes up, above the line can go sideways, cross department. So just knowing what kind of situation that you're in. We talked a lot about stage-based deal management versus meeting-based deal management. So we actually went through their pipeline stages and talked about the exit criteria at each stage. And regardless of how you have this set up in your sales force, whether you're a, a leader or a rep, you're going to get a ton from that too. So just very simple things when it comes to deal stage management and how to really think objectively about the milestones that we're hitting throughout the deal versus the meetings that we're doing. So this is a really good one. So appreciate you tuning in. If you could, before we get it, dig in, I got a quick favor for you. If you've been liking the show, leave an honest rating or review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It really helps make sure that we get the show in front of more people. All right, let's get to the episode with Mark. Anyone that has seen your background is naturally going to want to know a lot about the outreach, you know, kind of story and being the first employee and that sort of stuff. And um, I was kind of curious, you had previous sales leadership experience prior to outreach, right? Yeah, I did. So when you came on board, like the rocket ship that you're on, I'm just imagining how crazy the growth was and like adding people and like, what was that learning curve like? Uh, it happened so quickly. <laughs> it seems like, like what, what were you able to bring from previous positions versus just like learning on the job? Well, my job previous to outreach, I sold curriculum to mm -hmm. school districts up and down the East coast. I had a team of people that do that. And it would, that team would fluctuate anywhere from eight to 10. I had many as 20 some one time when I had to cover for another leader that had got let go. And um, that company was suffering. And, you know, if you, uh, if we were able to keep our growth rate, even it was considered a win. And oh, so, wow. but I didn't learn a lot about helping people out and how to really, you know, manage. I got, I have an awesome story. I call it my Mike Cyple story about when I realized that like, I had no clue what I was doing as a sales leader. Happy to share that if you want to do it. But like, ultimately what I took from that is I hate losing. And I, wherever I was going to go, whatever I was going to do, I, was, I wasn't going to F and lose anymore because that company was just about how do we keep the lights on enough to maybe withstand something so that we could turn it around one day. And it was just that constant loss was just too much. So that was that was like probably the biggest thing I took from that place. But um, coming to outreach, you know, the whole ignorance, ignorance is bliss. That was me. I was, hadn't been in tech. I had no expectations of what it was. Scaling from one to $250 million was just a job to me. It was didn't seem special or anything. I, I just knew one thing is, is like, I keep learning and I work really yeah. hard and I care a lot mm -hmm. and I let my passion be infectious to people. 
that I can create a culture where like we're in it together. And I felt like if I hired the right people and we were in it together, we'd figure it out. And I think that's really what, what happened is, is we had a unbelievable sales team filled with legendary sales talent. And we really loved each other, cared for each other, worked beside each other, rooted for one another and, and celebrated each other. And in the end, like that's kind of what fueled the, the whole rise. If you ask me that in an unbelievable product. <laughs> yeah. No, no kidding. What was the original vision that Manny had brought to you and like got you sold? What was the original vision? All right. So cool story is, um, I was looking, I was, uh, at a, um, a Hampton Inn in Northern Virginia meeting with one of my reps who had been struggling, not because he was a bad seller, but because he didn't have enough pipeline. And so we, mm-hmm. you know, when you go into that conference room at the Hampton Inn and it has that whiteboard that you open up and it has the double doors and like, there's like yeah. the court board on one side and in the middle is this tiny little whiteboard. And I open up this whiteboard and I'm like, listen, man, this is what we're going to do. On day one, you're going to call them. Right after you call them, you're going to send an email. On day three, you're going to call them again and leave a voicemail. On day five, and I wrote out basically what we now know as a cadence or a sequence, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is what we need to do. So I put together a spreadsheet for him to track it. And within two weeks, he's like, Mark, I have to shut this down. I have too many meetings. I can't get to all the meetings. This is working. So I'm like, okay, maybe I'm on to something here. So I rolled it out yeah. to like 13 or 14 other reps. Every single one of them, same thing. Like I'm flush with meetings. This is, there's too much to do. I have to turn it off. So we would kind of go through ways where we turn it on, turn it off. And what ultimately happened is it was too cumbersome to manually keep track of. And people would get bogged down in the admin of playing like, all right, I emailed this person. Now I need to move them to this column because I do this next on this date. And it was just too much to keep track of. So I'm thinking about that. And I hear about this company called Tout App. And Tout App, yeah, super old company from 10 years ago. They ended up raising like $16 million for Sequoia right as I was coming on at Outreach. They should have obliterated the sales engagement space, but they just, the product didn't quite work. And I remember I got Tout App and it did help me in some ways, but it didn't have the concept of a sequence. It had more of like automated emails that you could kind of string together and the how you could uh, how you personalize them and all that just wasn't elegant. And we didn't have Salesforce at that company, so we couldn't really do some of the magic. Yeah. And so, but they asked, but because I had, I was their first non-tech customer, they asked me to do a blog post. And I did a blog post on Tout App of that whiteboard of what I did. And then I talked about how to do prospecting correctly in a sequence-based world. Well, this is like maybe, in, this is like in 2013. 2014, 2012. So then uh, Manny starts doing outreach, right? Manny Medina, the CEO of outreach. And uh, he goes through Tout's website and he's like, who are all the case studies? Who've done all the blog posts? Who's done all of the content? And he found me. Well, at the same time, oddly enough, is there was a guy in New York City that I had helped out previously who's like, yo, I met your blood brother, man. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, this dude named Manny Medina, you two got to meet. So I called Manny. Manny was like, hey, I just saw you on the Tata website. And he gave me a demo of outreach. And what I saw was my whiteboard in software. I saw the ability to do multiple steps, A-B tests, different channels. And I just was like, I got terrified because I thought if my competitor bought this, but I couldn't convince my old crusty boss to buy it, I would never be able to outwork them. And so that's when I kind of fell in love with outreach. And uh, pretty soon after that, I um, I quit my job. Uh, I told Manny, like, listen, you can pay me 100% commission, but I got to sell outreach. He said, we can afford 100% commission. And uh, away I went. I sold a uh, million dollars worth of outreach in about six or seven months. And we did a seed round. And then I hired the first four SDRs and the first four AEs. And Manny asked me to build out the sales team. And then I built the sales team up to about $250 million. So. That's kind of the, the beginnings of the story. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I remember using Tout app and trying to thread responses into the same email chain and you yeah. couldn't do that. And I was like, wow, this seems like such a basic thing. <laughs> um, so it, correct me if I'm wrong. It doesn't sound like there was this huge vision where Manny came to you and was like, Hey, we're going to grow a, you know, nine figure plus company. It was just like, Hey, you really love the product and you came on board and, and the product, it sounds kind of like a lot of it was just 
this product is really good and nothing else exists quite like this. And you were just like super stoked about that. And that was just kind of. <laughs> I had a, I had a thesis, Jason, that consistent uh, activity across a focused set of accounts and people over a period of time will lead to results versus yeah. I'm going to open up my lead list every day and call everybody. And then they didn't answer. Mm-hmm. So it must be bad leads. So now I need another lead list. And I think that that thesis ended up proving to be very true. And what outreach was, is outreach was the technology that allowed the common person to be able to manage a very complicated workflow of multiple accounts, multiple people, multiple touch points, all at the same time. And you know that plus the convergence of the SDR role, which at the time I went over outreach, I've talked to um, a couple of people about this, but there seemed to be about 10,000 SDRs when I came into outreach. Now there's hundreds of thousands and mm-hmm. that young first seller doesn't really know what they're doing, lacking discipline. Plus our technology was, you know, electric discipline, basically those two things together created the explosion of the role and the explosion of the value of that role. And so I got really lucky there. But, uh, you know, I did do a whole lot of hard work to make sure that I capitalized on the luck I got. Yeah. God, I don't think that people realize also how young sales engagement is, you yeah. know, the, the tools for this. I mean, that was a decade ago, basically. That's it. It's insane. It's insane. I mean, my first sales job, Jason, I got a list of schools in my sales territory. That's it. Just a list of schools and addresses and phone numbers. And I had to call every school and be say, who's a principal? Who does a reading curriculum? Who does a math curriculum? Who's the yeah. this teacher? Well, who coaches this team? And I'd have to sit there and figure all of that out or go to the website and mine it all. And then I actually had to create my own Microsoft Access database that was like my own homegrown CRM to store all the information so that I could organize myself because it just wasn't, uh, you know, they weren't providing those type of tools. And, you know, I remember my Fridays were my call days. I'd make a hundred dials every Friday. And as soon as I was done with a hundred dials, I was done for the day. If it took me till 8 PM, I just stayed, even though nobody would pick up the phone at a school after 3 PM, I still stayed until I made all my calls. And I just did that for seven years. And I would get 12 to 14 meetings every single Friday. That would be for the following week and the week or two after that. And then I'd be driving around, central Pennsylvania for four or five or six hours a day to all these appointments and trying to do my thing. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. What did the, like, when you look at the next, you know, five, six, seven years that you spent at outreach, cause this is going to kind of segue into the stuff we're talking about today around, you know, tightening up our sales process. And how did you learn this stuff? You had done it prior. I'm assuming this was at a level you had, that you didn't have personal experience with. Is there any kind of non-obvious things that you did to, I mean, learn how to hire at that rate, how to create those types of systems and scale and forecasting? And like, how did you, how did you learn all of this stuff? Um, so the way that I, I think about myself is I, uh, I'm a learner like that. I like to learn. I like to get exposed to new things. I like to try things out. I don't think my way is the best way. I I think there is a best way. And if I keep working at it, I'll find it. But I'll tell you, this is um, a lot of things that I do. I think that to be a really strong leader is you have to know how to help people be successful. You have to know the process and you have to be able to teach it. And so over the years, I've just developed my own processes and I have a personality deficiency in that I'm very forgetful. And so the story goes, um, I'm driving home one day and my wife calls me on the exit ramp to pick up a gallon of milk. She's at home with our four kids, you know, doing her thing and just asking me for a little help to get some milk on the way home for breakfast tomorrow. My house is one mile from the exit ramp. And for some reason, I forgot between that one mile to get the milk. And I roll up into the house. The kids mob me. My wife looks at me. She says, where's the milk? And I'm like, I'm such an asshole. And so I turn around, I get back in the car. I go to the, get the milk and on the way I'm saying my brain is so busy that I can't even respect my wife enough 
to pick up milk when she asked me when it's all I have to do is keep it in my brain for two minutes. And so I went home and I remember sitting in my office and I started Googling, like, how do you get more organized, whatever. And I found this book called Getting Things Done by David Allen. And I read that book in about four weeks, 70 to 80% of my stress went away. My creativity went up 10x. And while I don't do that stuff exactly the way he outlines it now, because it's a little too stringent for me, that was a big thing. And so in that, what I realized was, if I have processes that my brain trusts, it unlocks my creativity because if my brain isn't trying to figure out what to do, it can just do what it knows is best. And so that's how I approach everything. Like, how should you prospect? I got a process. How should you sell? I got a process. How should you do discovery? I got a process. I don't do that stuff because I'm super smart. I do that stuff because if I don't, I will forget the best way to do it. And if I forget the best way to do yeah. it, then I'm going to compromise my own results. And why do that? Yeah. It's it's funny because it's uh, the sense that I get from you and just in the content that I've consumed or the interviews I've listened with you is that uh, you're more you're very uh, you're very process driven like you just shared but it's I don't I don't see that in a lot of the like sales executives that I work with they're usually not very process driven and I'm wondering yeah. <laughs> is that has that been like especially in your more recent position you're what eight months seven months into catalyst mm-hmm. was that a bit of a shock to their culture to to have someone come in like that and i'm sure you've talked about how you've kind of get people bought into certain stuff and you know that sort of thing but was that all a shock being so process oriented yeah it was I'd, I'd just sit down with kind of each team and say all right like let's I believe there should be a process. I believe your job should be 80% operational that you can trust. And so the last 20% can be you. Because if you're running around trying to figure out you for 80%, it's just too difficult and too much open play. And and this is a really bad analogy because people that work work for me aren't kids. But like I, I have four kids. And one of the things I realized with my kids is if you give them guidelines they're infinitely creative inside those guidelines. If they have no guidelines, all they do is spend their time trying to find the guidelines. And I think people yeah. are that way in general. It's like, if I say, here's a process, it's not overly restrictive. It's not like, you know, click A, then hit shift, and then wait three seconds and click your mouse. But if I give them a general process and say, stay within the guidelines and you can get 80% yeah. of where you need to be, I think that people find security in that. And then that unlocks as they get as they master that process, the creativity they have inside of them. So for most teams here, it was a little of initial shock. Then they saw, oh, I don't have to remember as much. I'm more free. Then they started doing some of the best work that they've done. And, and then it kind of goes through that. But there's that part of it. But then I have a balance. And my balance is, is I have... Two people here, Alex Kremer and Clara Johnson, that are my, uh, they're my yin to my yang. I am very process oriented and they are now too, but they bring the, hey guys, we're going to start a meeting with some breathing exercises today and get our mindset right. And hey, like, you know what? We need to cancel this meeting to talk about this project and just talk about like, what's our purpose? Like, why are we doing this? Like, why are you excited to come to work on Monday? Like, write it down. Like tape it to your computer. They're the type of people that are start the one-on-one with being like, hey, how's it going? And the person starts talking about it. They're like, no, 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 stop, stop for a second. Jason, how are you doing? Like, how's your energy right now? And so I needed that balance. And I've learned so much from them about how to do that, that I feel like I am an energy, you know, more, I, I have a more harmonious approach. Whereas it used to just be, listen, Jason, like just do the process, man. Like I'm a nice guy, but like do the freaking process. Now I'm like, hey, you're struggling with the process. What about it is a blocker for you? How does it feel? And so you got to have that, the both sides of it. And I think it's really, really important. And that's why those are two of my first hires here at Catalyst is I needed to establish that from a leadership position. Like we are worried about you as a person, as an individual, as a human. And we're going to give you all these processes and tools to maximize your productivity for the company. But if we take care of you as a person that we think that all of the best things will happen. And so I think that that's a really important part of how I lead. And I make sure that I have people surround me that balance out my process drivenness. So it's not shocking everybody because the other stuff is more soothing. 
Yeah. I relate with you a lot in this area. I'm extremely process driven. So like everything's got steps, a framework, a, uh, a notion document that kind of outlining at least the key kind of things in our business, how we generate leads, how we run sales calls, how we deliver training, that kind of thing. And, uh, my wife, Sarah, helps a lot in this area with me, both professionally and personally. It's just like, hey, dude, there's a human component to this, too. Not everyone's a, a freaking machine like you do. <laughs> they just could, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, I like to say to me, don't treat me like a task. <laughs> oh, man. Yes. Do this, do this, I'm done. Do this, I'm over here. Do this, I'm yeah. you know? She's like, I'm not a task. I'm like, you're right, baby. You're not. <laughs> oh, man. We could go down a rabbit hole with that. I, I relate with you on that too. Um, so I'm interested in your what your observation has been in that I'm assuming you got a lot of exposure to how a lot of different sales teams like run their sales motion and outreach. And, and now too, like you experience a lot on the on the customer success. Side. Like you, you see how a lot of this stuff works. I'm wondering if you relate with this. I... With the sales teams that I work with, some of them are like, I don't get as many of these anymore, but it could be like five to 10 uh, SDRs on the first SDR team. And then I have other clients where it's three, four, 500 reps, kind of in that range and then everywhere in between. And I would say 80, 90% of the folks that I work with, it's very clear that there are sales stages in their CRM, but there isn't really a process for how to do anything. They might have MedPick or medic that they're using, but there isn't like a, here are the, here's the three to five step process or four or five part process that we should use when we're doing very early discovery. And here's kind of what that conversation could look and sound like. How does that compare to your experience observing this stuff? Is it, is it similar in that a lot of the sales teams are like, they're doing the calls that they're supposed to the intro calls and the demos, but they're isn't really a clear process outside of at the end of this, I know I should ask for a next step and we should probably talk about scoping out a project together. What's, what's your observation, Ben? Um, I think that there's a lot of well-conceived sales roadmaps uh, that have stages in them. And I think that they, there's two kinds of ways to deal with that. One is stage-based deal management, which means, we understand and there's no ambiguity about what a stage means. Like, for example, we're in the discovery stage. Well, listen, don't you do discovery through the whole sales cycle? So like, how are you in the discovery stage? Now we're in the demo phase. All right. So does that mean that we, if we do a demo, one demo, we're in the demo phase, but what if we need to do a demo like five places down or like, mm -hmm. what if it's somebody's first time to do a demo and they become very ambiguous in what they mean Versus a stage-based deal management is, is in order to move from this stage, to, from stage one to stage two, you must accomplish these two things. And these two things are shown to move the buyer forward, to help guide the buyer to the next things, the next decisions they need to make. The other way is meetings-based. Meetings-based is, the to me, the most dangerous type of sales pro process. So what do you do after discovery, Jason? Set up a demo. Set up a demo. <laughs> you set up a demo. You set up a scoping call. What do you have scoping yeah. call? Set up a yeah. proposal meeting. What do you do for proposal meeting? You set up a check-in. Yeah. And you know what you're accomplishing there? Nothing. You're just doing stuff. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. the reason I want to do a demo is because I completely understand the org chart and I understand the business initiatives that I need to impact through our product. And until we, I do those two things, I don't want my reps demoing because the demo can land as generic, flat, too wide, you know, not relevant, or we don't show specific parts that have power. Now, that doesn't mean don't have like a good overview demo to give someone context because sometimes people need to see or, you know, is it what, 80% of us are visual learners. So you do need to have some visual context, but you shouldn't be doing like, hey, let me just walk you through the product real quick. And like the next thing you know, you've done a 30 minute demo where who knows what landed and what, what doesn't land is we, we, I think that catalyst has the best demo in SAS. I believe that we, we have that because we understand your business initiatives. We've scripted out a narrative about a person sitting in the seat and exactly what it's like to use it. 
uh, while describing some of the behind the curtain Wizard of Oz stuff that's going on to let people do. And it soups the nuts. It's from I sit down in the morning to I just completed a meeting where I set off an automation inside of Slack that alerted everybody of an escalation of a at-risk account that prior to that meeting, I had no, I, I only had a few clues what was wrong and I, I figured that out. So I, I think that the meeting-based thing is because is the worst because the next step is always the next meeting you think you need. And that might not be what the buyer needs versus yeah. our stage one is map out the org. We call it three to one, three people in two departments. One of them needs to be above the line. Like you got to figure that out to see if you actually have like a real problem here. Anybody cares about. And then what are the business initiatives? What are the things that are on a board slide that somebody is responsible for delivering? Cause the business has already invested time and resources into that. Until you have those two things, you can't go to stage two. And and you know what? If you want to do some other stuff ahead of time, you can do that, but you got to do those two things. And then next goes to quantify business initiatives. We have to understand like what you're trying to accomplish with the numbers so we can understand is the problem big enough. And the other one is an eye date. We need to know when you need to implement by in order to receive the benefits that we think that we can get you in a timeline. If you can't do those two things then you don't get to leave stage two. And what happens is when you have that consistency, two things. One, your reps can get really good at doing those things. They get really good about asking for an eye date. They get really good about quantifying it because they know they have to do it and they can do it over and over again. And the second thing is you get data consistency. When we lose a deal in stage two, we know it's probably because we couldn't quantify business initiatives or get an eye date. And so if we see a lot of stuff dropping out in the funnel, we have an idea of what we can do in mass to help people fix those sorts of things versus most people's stage data is so inconsistently applied to look at stage-based conversion is kind of stupid, honestly. So, but yeah, that's, uh, that's how I'm, that's how I think about, you know, the process of the uh, specifically like the sales funnel. Yeah. So stage-based versus meeting-based it's, it's interesting to see how many enterprise organizations use meeting-based like stages and it's how could you possibly do that with a large enterprise deal it just it doesn't really make any sense when you think about all of the multi-threading that you got to do and all of the different journeys that people are on um i think one thing that really sticks out to me too the way that you have this laid out is it makes skill development very clear Mm -hmm. with a team or a rep like you said if People are losing at stage two, quantifying business initiatives and implementation date. It's like, those are very specific skills. And I see a lot of reps get stuck on this too, where like they aren't quite able to find the business initiative or don't quite understand how to, you know, see how it's quantified in any kind of way, what metrics that people are using, who else cares about it, who owns it, all of that kind of stuff. And for you, it sounds like, I mean, it's really pretty simple. So there's like two things, three things, maybe it sounds like at each stage that I need, like it's, it's very simple. Yeah, really simple. And we, we like right now at Catalyst, we're working on iDate and we've introduced the concept of stage three of getting approved required capabilities, but we're nailing down. Can you ask for someone, can you get someone to agree on how that, uh, on a date on which they need to implement by to receive the benefits that we're going to give them? And it's not, this stuff isn't hard. It's just. You do need to practice it and you shouldn't practice it on prospects. You should practice it amongst yourselves and then you'll get really good at it. And what that does is it sets an anchor that lets the deal move forward. Each of those exit criteria need to move the deal forward. They're not things just that you need to know. They're not like qualification information. That's stuff that you do earlier, right? This is stuff that helps the buyer put a toehold in the, the wall that they're trying to climb to get a decision made. And to get over that, to see over the top of that wall and take that deal into procurement, you've got to give them several toeholds. And I, I believe at each of my stops, I'm pretty good at figuring out what those toeholds are and teaching people how to get good at them. Yeah. Now, if you're doing SMB deals, you maybe can get away with meeting space. At, at Outreach, our SMB uh, segment was led by Nate Broom, he still is, one of the best transa- uh, transactional sales leaders on the planet, in my opinion. He has a partner named Mark Fagundas and Shay Keeler that are also instrumental in helping him do what he needed to do. And they 
have broke down, they have, they have something called the five decks. There's five decks. You master the five decks and you can close at a low 30% win rate. And they've just drilled their org. And that is more of a meeting-based thing, but that's because the deck they've created accomplishes what needs to be accomplished in that stage. And again, you keep the focus narrow and you get really good. And so their onboarding is you just master the five decks and then you'll be a top performer. And most people that man that master the five decks do become really, really awesome AEs. And then they get promoted up from there. Then they understand the process so that when we start to teach them the more sophisticated techniques, they have some there's some real roots in if I master what I'm master master, I can be good. Yeah. What are the other stages? You said stage three was what again? Yeah. So stage three is, um, uh, confirming the metrics. So we're trying to quantify the business initiatives being like, Oh, I'm trying to reduce churn. Uh, you know, if we reduce churn on, we have, uh, you know, a uh, hundred million dollar base. We're trying to improve our churn rates 5%. That's a $5 million thing. So we go in and confirm with someone that those are definitely the right numbers in stage three. And then we do required capabilities, which is in order to go from your current state to a future state, there has to be a bridge, the bridge are the required capabilities that you need to do. And so those map to typically features and uh, functionality inside the product and required capabilities also allow you to differentiate because you can inject into a list of required capabilities, things that are important that only you can do. And you can prioritize the things that only you can do if they provide a lot of value to the company. Then the next stage is we're trying to get an approved a, a proposal and pass through procurement. And then the last one is, is an executed contract. And then we passed off uh, the required information to our onboarding teams to have a smooth onboarding that's nice and simple to five stages, if I counted correctly. Yeah. Five stages. That's crazy. Five stages zero yeah. for when we book a meeting, when SDR books a meeting, but like, yeah. That's, but yeah, that's, that's how it works. So one thing I wanted to pick your brain on with this is and where I was kind of going, you're, you're pretty bullish. Let me know if your stance has, has changed at all <laughs> on this, but you're pretty bullish on, Hey, Doing more outbound as an account executive and self-sourcing a higher percentage of pipeline is not nearly as useful as figuring out how to run a better sales process. And we're kind of in a forcing function right now with the current, you know, kind of macroeconomic stuff that's going along for uh, going on for a lot of these companies. Is that still your stance that, hey, this is not a problem that we fix by doing more outbound and, and building more top of funnel? Like we have to tighten up how we run our sales process. I believe that there's a minimum floor of activity that you should do so you don't atrophy the muscles of prospecting and you are responsible a little bit for charting your own path. But I think past that and just being like, well, listen, we need our AEs to make 50 calls a day and that's that's enough. Then to come in and be like, we need our 50 calls a week. Then all of a sudden you change it to 50 calls a day. I don't think you're going to get like 5x the the product productivity in doing that. I think top of yeah. funnel right now is diminishing in the returns as buyers clam up. And I think that, you know, if, if something like, you know, if I'm, uh, if I'm, uh, um, the Los Angeles Lakers paying the, the Denver nuggets who, you know, I don't know if you're a basketball guy, but like, I'm not going to like, I'm no Jokic is killing me. I'm not going to try to like, throw everything I can at everybody else and let, let Jokic just kill me. You know what I mean? Like there's a thing that isn't going to work. So why keep messing with it? Just let it do what it's going to do and work on the other stuff is kind of how I think about it. And right now, top of funnel prospecting is really, really hard. And I don't know that if somebody spends more time on it, they're going to get enough out of it to make that time uh, worth spending on when they can do it on, spend it on something else. Yeah. So let's talk about that then. Stage one, mapping the org. One thing that sticks out to me, and this is something that multi-threading is something that so many sales organizations struggle with in terms of, like the advice is always like, get to power, get to power, get to power. And there isn't really any kind of, hey, well, what are we actually trying to accomplish by involving more stakeholders? Um, Like you mentioned mapping the org. I'm assuming that there's some sort of, 
step in here where it's like, even before we have an initial conversation, we should kind of have done enough research. I don't know if you agree to like kind of maybe hypothesize who the players might be that need Mm -hmm. to get involved. But how do you think of multi-threading and is this something that it looks like is very intentional that you want a rep thinking about like during the first interactions that they have with a buyer when a lot of times it's, it's like an afterthought for a lot of, a lot of sales orgs have noticed. Yeah. Listen, uh, buying is becoming more complicated. There's more decision makers than ever. There's more, you know, water cooler conversations. There's more competing priorities, you know, before you might've been competing just with external competitors, but now you're competing with other internal projects that need resources because people have less people and less money to do stuff. The only way to combat that is with multi-threading. And so, you know, uh, at Outreach, we had something called Model T. Uh, at um, Catalyst, we have something called Colgate. And it's just a acronym that talks about these are the personas that we can help with. And if you really want a deal, you should be selling many deals to each one of those personas. Because like, for example, an operations person's needs and stuff are different than somebody that is running a post-sales customer success team or a post-sales account management team. Those are three very different functions that have three very different needs. And you better get in with each one of them right now, especially, and make sure that the ops person's needs are met, the account management needs are met, and the CS person's needs are met. And you can hope that you show the ops person or the VP of account management all the stuff, and then they're going to go tell everybody about it. But that's not really what happens. You, you know, we just say like, listen, there's five or six mini deals. If you win all the mini deals, you win the big deal. And the mini deals aren't hard to win if you treat them with respect and understand their needs and do it. And don't just look at it as like, well, I need to multi-thread because multi-threading is going to help me. So if we were to get pretty tactical with this, I'm I'm curious how you guys approach this. Is a is a typical inbound lead going to be like a customer success type of person? Like what's a, what's a typical inbound lead look like when someone books a, books a call through the site? Uh, more than likely it'll be somebody that's in a director or up role in customer success or yeah. account management. Okay. So director of customer success, a couple scenarios that I see often are when a someone on the line or below the line, sometimes a customer success manager, maybe that might even just be looking into, for me, it's sales enablement managers. Usually you, you get a lot of inbound. What's the, what kind of process uh, do your reps have around? I have an initial first conversation set up. It's with someone that's, that appears to be below the line. You can't always make assumptions based off of someone's title, of course, but I'm not getting like an executive in that first call. What's the, what's the goal, I guess, of that from a multi-threading, you know, kind of lens. And an example of kind of what I'm talking about is like, Hey, do we start looping in like power early? Do we wait to have that conversation? Like what's the, what's the kind of process, the very early stages of multi-threading for you? Yeah. So there's kind of like a law and the law is this. If you're BTL, all a BTL can do is take you up inside their persona to somebody higher. Mm-hmm. If you're ATL above the line, an ATL person can take you to different other ATL personas that spread yeah. you wide. So if I'm getting like a manager of CS or a director of CS. That person typically can only take me up to a VP. Once I'm with the VP, then I can go to the VP of ops, the VP of this, the VP of that. And so that's what you want to do is you want to really value the relationship of that person that showed the initial interest, help them understand that in most sales situations, you will see better results and we won't waste each other's time if we get an executive involved that has business initiatives that they're on the hook for the business too. And then once you're with that person, then you talk to them about, hey, people want cross-departmental solutions that everybody agrees with and align to what the company's doing. And so we, uh, we just need to cr- make sure that we create uh, a consensus among the different people that this technology will touch. Uh, and so that's what it is. So if you're BTL, go up, don't go wide. If you're ATL, go wide. You don't need to really go down necessarily. They'll take you down for requirements and stuff. So I love that rule. Um, you said results by results. Do you mean 
that we'll be able to get a deal together, that type of result, or more like the outcome of what we implement. If you guys move forward with something like that will be more successful if we have more involvement from other people, or is it both? Or something else no, that I might have missed. I always want to get the deal, right? But yeah. this, this is the energy that I want my sales team to have, is we want you, Jason, to make a confident decision. If that's for us, we're honored to help you do that and to help you get value. If it's not for us, but you feel confident about it, we're happy for you. Because if it doesn't work out, you can come back to us and we will help you. If it does work out, then you made the right decision and there's enough fish in the ocean for us to find somebody else. And so when you tell people that, listen, my job isn't for you to pick catalysts. My job is to help you make a confident decision. I believe that that confident decision will result in catalysts, but if it doesn't, it's okay. And then you actually put out that energy and how you sell, then it works really good. I'm not scared of somebody, like if we do all the work, and somebody's like, Mark, I feel like 100% confident we need to go with this competitor. And they've done a great job and they have all accurate information. Like more power to you for like being considerate and having an opinion and not being scared to tell me and like, go for it. Like I'm rooting for you. But if it doesn't work out, like I'm here for you. And I, I think that in my sales career, that's helped a lot. And I think in the careers of many people on my sales teams, that's helped a lot. But like, we're not trying to win a deal. We're trying just to help people make confident decisions. Now, I try to pick best in, best in breed products so that confident decisions will most often land in my favor, but they don't always. Yeah. That's okay. There's so much in just that last statement that you had there too around products, like making sure that you're selling a world-class product that you're on yeah. <laughs> on that team too, you know, is such a big part of it. Um. Okay. I love that. The my job is to help you make a confident decision. So are you recommending in those first initial conversations, is this just like me to you trying to sell you essentially on the fact that you can make a more confident decision by involving your peers? Is it going through the point of contact usually? And the second question to that would be, what if they're on kind of unwilling to, to yeah. help and they, you know, that happens a lot. Um, listen, yeah. I'm sure you've seen it. I've seen it. Probably a lot of the listeners have seen it where you get with someone and they just have an overvalued perspective of what they can and can't do in an organization. And not only that, it's just not a, it doesn't align to a lot of companies ethos for one person to see like, I evaluated it. I figured it out. We're going to make it work. It's all on me. Look at me. I'm the hero. I don't care what anybody else has. Like that whole mentality doesn't work, right? So typically what we would say is like, listen, right now, especially when CFOs and other people are so demanding of what's going on, they're looking for multiple perspectives to come to a decision. If we just go with the best business case in the world with just you and you're the only person that's heard it, when that CFO goes to verify what they've heard, there's nobody there to back you up. And you just wasted months of a sales cycle. And you all you could all you had to do to avoid it was involve some other people in the conversation. So let's not get to the end and lose just because there's nobody there to validate what we said that can uh, you know amplify your opinion. And then if they're unwilling, honestly, like I just say, listen, here's the deal. If that's how, if you think that's how it's be. It's going to be a price-based decision. Go to your CFO right now, figure out what price it is, and I'll figure out and like, let's make a deal. And like, I don't need to go through all of the steps and everything. If you are going to just make the decision anyway, like you're talking to me, tell me the three things that you need. I'll tell you if I got them or not. And then let's agree on a price and get it done. And then I'm going to just try to truncate that sales cycle and not waste time on it. And if I get a bluebird yeah. and it works, awesome. If it doesn't, I'm in and out, no harm done. And that person feels like they worked me over because I gave them a great deal or whatever. Which, so th they'll come back. But like, I'm not going to like try to run like this crazy deal cycle with somebody that wants to hoard power because the people that hoard power usually don't have it. Oh God, that's such a great, great soundbite right there. People, people who don't have power like to pretend they have it. Um, so, uh, so what I kind of took away from that is it sounds like you, you bring a lot of, you encourage your reps to bring a lot of candor into those conversations. Just be straight up with the prospect. Or, I uh, tell people this all the time. The more honest you are, the more likely you are to get the sale. 
People want to buy yeah. from Google. Just be honest. It's, it's okay. I think in the end, it, it washes out. If you have a few points of honesty that don't align to what they need, it's better to find out now. So just be yeah. honest. The other thing I tell people all the time is let your passion overcome your professionalism. We're so worried about being professionals that we don't say, Jason, you just said that you don't think that Catalyst can help you with your, your churn rate. I'm telling you, man, like we internally just saved 10 customers last quarter because we got in some individual signals that they were downsizing their team and we were able to get ahead of the conversation and keep their actually increase their spend because we showed them the value that they were doing and branched into other areas. And so we didn't have to suffer from the contraction of them doing reduced headcount. Like you can't tell me it doesn't work when I just read 10 slacks that tell me it does work. You know what I mean? Like you got to have that kind of passion and soul behind it. And sometimes we're just so professional. Well, I understand why you might think that Jason and like, it's a valid concern, but we do have customers that we do really help. Like you just sound like, you know, somebody that doesn't really have any passion. And I think people want passion. Yeah. One last question on multi-threading. I love that piece. Um, How does, how do you recommend executives participate in this? You recently wrote a post on some, something sort of similar to this topic, but what's the role of the executive when multi-threading? Yeah. So listen, I think that, uh, executives should be busy and then most of them are and that the rep needs to engage the executive in the multi-threading and make it easy for them. But the executive does owe some things back, you know, like, like every email that I get that's drafted for me, which makes it easy. I make sure that I read it and that it sounds like me and is my voice. I do that. I also handle the follow-up like that rep doesn't have to ping me to keep following up. I have my own system for follow-up and I stay on top of it after three follow-ups and nothing. I ping the rep and be like, I followed up three times. Nothing happened. It's back to you, right? That you, they need to come and bring like real value. They, their job is to up-level the conversation. Like I've been in so many meetings where the exec just sits there and they think that their title and then being there is some kind of value or whatever. And I guess it works for some people, but like not for me. Like I'm trying to listen to like how to up-level the conversation, how to get to the narrative of what we do rather than just, you know, talking through features and functionality. So yeah, the executive needs to under, needs to have their executive mode and then their executive selling mode. And you got to shift into that mode to make sure that when you start to get involved in a deal, that you know what you're, you're doing and what your purpose is. Like, you know, are you asking that rep, what is the outcome that you want me to help you do? I said, never do. What's the outcome you want? And then my job is to get that outcome. That's why I'm on the call. Not to like watch the rep struggle through it and not get the outcome, but I never even really tried that much. Yeah. And one thing you pointed out in a post that you wrote recently too, was that uh, it's important to also know the outcome that the prospect wants also. Yeah, what's the other person trying to accomplish? <laughs> and it sounds very simple. It's a it's a basic, you know, kind of sales fundamental, but it can be really easy to forget, especially with you're looping in an executive and you kind of brief them on what you want to talk about. And it's like, well, what about the other side? Do they know th- what the agenda of that call is and what the outcomes are supposed to be and what we're trying to accomplish and all of that kind of stuff? Yeah, I think, you know, honestly, in most sales calls, I don't think the buyer knows what they want to accomplish. What they want is they want to be told what to accomplish and then they want to react to it. So listen, like in today's meeting, Jason, what I want to do is by the end of it, I want you to help me figure out a date by which we need to have this thing implemented so you can get the value we want. We'll talk through everything, but like be thinking about that as we go through. I'm going to throw out something at the end and you can tell me what you think or not, because what that'll do is that'll set an anchor and then we can do a work back plan from there about how do we get it done. And that starts to give you kind of like what you need to do, what I need to do if we can agree on that, like we can usually keep moving forward. Like, does that sound good? And most people are like, yeah, that sounds awesome. But I could say like 13 other things and they just all say it sound awesome. What doesn't sound awesome is, yeah. hey, Jason, what do you want to accomplish in this meeting? Dude, I don't know. I just got out of three meetings. I got two meetings after this. This is a sales call. Aren't you supposed to be doing it? Like, why the heck are you asking me what we should do? I've never bought your stuff before. I've never even talked to you. I don't know what we should be doing. Like, yeah. that's just a stupid question. Anything yeah. I'm missing here? 
I don't know if I'm missing something or not. I'm like half paying attention because I just got a weird slack. <laughs> yeah. No, I love it, man. We got to run. I uh, I could talk to you. Each of the topics we talked about, I could spend an hour talking with you. May not want to do that, but uh, I could spend an hour talking oh, and just hour. really just on multi-threading. You know, um, dude. By the way, I don't know if you have a plan. I know you've written a book, uh, co-authored a book, but dude, a sales book with all of these like lessons outside of the just like raw tactics, like just little stuff you mentioned, or like prospects want to be told and then react. The honesty, the passion over profession. There's these like things that are just ubiquitous across the entire sales process that if you just add them to the process, it's all of these like human soft skills and principles that just like really level up everything that you're doing. It's the, it's the, I think what a lot of people call the intangibles, Yeah, you know? So I don't know. I would, I would buy that book and recommend it, man. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> I do have, a, I do have, I've done one course. It's on uh, digitalsalescollective.com. It's a, you know, an hour and a half long discovery course that breaks down exactly how to do a discovery call in order to win a deal that, but here's the beauty of it, Jason is, is it's a very flexible framework that you can use to yeah. do anything. And so it doesn't matter if you're talking to people that manufacture nails or B2B SaaS company, you can use this framework and flex it in inside of any conversation to get what you want. And it's very, uh, it's very uh, programmatic and simple to understand. And I, it's funny, my, one of my first reviews was a, a young lady that bought it and she uh, emailed me. She's like, Mark, uh, I was preparing for an interview. I had to do a mock discovery call. I downloaded your course. And she's like, I got the job and I did so good on the discovery that next week I'm leading a discovery class for the, the whole sales org as a new hire. And that's oh, wow. the kind of, that's what you want to have. You want to have people that are engaged in your discovery so much that they don't realize that you're trying to sell them. They feel like you're trying to help them and figure them out. Dude, I love it. Before you take off, so go check out digitalsalescollective.com. Definitely follow Mark on uh, LinkedIn if you are not tons post tons of great content. Anything else that you want people to do, Mark, to go check out your staff or what you're up to at Catalyst? No, man, mostly LinkedIn. You know, I've, I've, ha- I've been traveling. So the last couple of weeks I'm down, but I usually post something every single day and it's a little bit more long form. Uh, I look at it. I, I know people don't believe this, but it takes me 20, 30 minutes and I, every day, and I just kind of, that's where I do my journaling every day. It's like, yeah. I had an interesting conversation and then read something interesting. Let me, here's my reaction to it and how I might summarize it. And so, uh, but yeah, that's the, that's probably the best place to, to catch me. 